Hey everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star, and I am grateful for you listening to the 48th episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. 48 is Jorge Soler's league-leading home run total from 2019, which, not a humble brag here, uh, prompted a Royals official to remind me that I said that he'd set the club record when they traded for him. Okay, uh, the goal, like always, is to be worth your time. Uh, This week, we're going to do that with questions about the reasons behind KU's tournament loss to USC, the possibility of Eric Fisher returning to the Chiefs, and two questions about the Royals locking up players to extensions that keep them in Kansas City longer. The bonus segment is a conversation with David Carter. Uh, David is the executive director of the USC Sports Business Institute. Um, I was so happy to catch up with David. He has some really interesting perspectives on the trend that's leaving a lot of people, uh, including many here in Kansas City, without an easy way to watch their favorite teams. Uh, There's a column on this on our website right now, uh, including a quote from David. And I'm telling you, this is one of the most important and impactful stories of the next few years in sports. It it is something that we're going to continue to watch continue to write on, continue to talk about. Uh, the column has stuff, the conversation doesn't, and vice versa. Uh, you know, I suppose in the business, I'm supposed to call that synergy. Uh, but either way, I hope you listen to David here and, and read the column online. Um, okay, uh, the Star is running a special promotion for the Sports Pass right now. Dollar a month for three months for all of our sports coverage, including more original Chiefs and Royals content than you can find anywhere else. You can find that on our website or just reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, email, and I'll send you the link for the subscription. I I appreciate everybody, each one of you who's listened and offered great feedback on the show and and especially, no offense to the other people, but especially those of you that have written in asking for the subscription link. Your Your support means everything to me and more importantly to the people I work with. So thank you. Okay, um, guys, there are so many places that we could start this week, but um, we're going to do it with this thing. I I hear more of you talking about this than anything else this week, which is usually a pretty good place to start um, the podcast, right? So um, we've got, again, like we've got like three local basketball teams that are each like in some form of drama. Um, You know, the Royals are about to start their season, um, but sweet Moses, a lot of you guys are freaking out about the Chiefs. Uh, and I get it. Um, I do. Uh, honest. I I get it. Um, they desperately need a left tackle. And, and the last memory that we have of the Chiefs is them just getting absolutely destroyed, blown to bits uh, because they couldn't block uh, on the edges. So, um, you know, they desperately need that left tackle. And whatever word is like a half a step below desperate um, is how badly they need a number two receiver. <laughs> and not too far down that list, you'd find center, edge rush, cornerback. I mean, there, there's a lot going on here. And in a lot of ways, um, you know, just kind of listening and, and interacting with a lot of you guys, it feels like the honeymoon is over with Brett Veach, right? Um, you know, there was this enormous wave of positivity uh, with him being, you know, sort of the the verified, you know, bang on the table guy for Patrick Mahomes in the draft. And then, you know, the absolute wizardry of of flipping that disaster of a defense in 2018 to one good enough to win the Super Bowl the next season, you know, but nothing lasts forever, right? Um, Not even for a fan base that not too long ago would have signed up for a decade of four and 12 if they could have experienced just one Super Bowl. So, uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on right now. You know, the the Chiefs, by many accounts, have been really aggressive in, in pursuing free agents. Depending on where you go, 
Uh, it seems as if the Chiefs offered left tackle Trent Williams a contract that would have made him the highest paid tackle in league history. Um, but Williams, understandably, comfortable with the 49ers, so he gave them the right to match or beat the deal, uh, which they did. The Chiefs went hard after Juju Smith-Schuster, too. Uh, he took a deal for less money to return to the Steelers. Uh, Kawan Williams uh, would have been a great fit for the Chiefs, an absolutely great fit. Good slot corner. You know, then you allow Legereus Sneed to move outside, but uh, Williams re-upped with the 49ers. Uh, now, the, the Chiefs have massively improved the interior of the offensive line, right? And, and that has been a pretty significant hole the last few years, uh, not just in, you know, not just last season. But, you know, with the big deal for Joe Tooney, a uh, potentially big one with Kyle Long, you know, the Chiefs have a lot of interesting pieces along that line and and good depth too um really good depth everywhere but left tackle anyway right okay so like human nature means that we're all thinking about what the chiefs don't have more than what they do and and i want to be clear this is not me telling any chiefs fan that you should not be worried about your team like you should be worried all i'm saying is you shouldn't panic right like there's a big difference um you know and, and this is not like brett veach is not some like you know infallible general manager and you know the it's not because like the Chiefs are somehow going to draft four day one starters, you know, including a franchise left tackle and a badass edge rusher and everything else. Like, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that, you know, if the Chiefs get even a serviceable left tackle, then they will have a better overall offensive line than the one they had for the majority of a season in which they went 14 and two played in a third consecutive AFC championship game and a second straight Super Bowl. So that's pretty good. Right. Um, is it perfect? Absolutely not. No. Um, and, you know, the sort of like general momentum right now does not feel as strong as it did a year ago at this time, you know, when the Chiefs were like handing out backloaded big money contracts like hotcakes, you know, and every other word from them was like run it or back. Um, but, you know, what I don't hear a lot of people talking about, and I mean this sincerely, maybe I'm just missing it, but what I don't hear a lot of people talking about is this really strange moment that the Chiefs are in, you know, that they, they are squeezed on the cap. Um, and a lot of teams are, um, you know, and, and the Chiefs also have these deals that they've made that are getting more and more expensive, like Frank Clark and God, like, Chiefs fans are going to debate Frank Clark forever, right? Because he is one of the guys that the Chiefs would not have won the Super Bowl with, um, right? Like, I, I think that's a fact. Um, and he has also objectively underperformed both expectations and salary. I think that's also a fact. Uh, he's on a $25.8 million cap hit this season. And then we'll probably be cut for, uh, it would be a $13.4 million cap savings after this season. Maybe they restructure that, but I'm guessing he's probably cut. Um, Travis Kelsey's cap hit. Um, you know, that's going to that's gonna go up about $3.5 million from 2021 to 2022. Chris Jones. Chris Jones is scheduled to go from $8.5 million on the cap in 2021 to, um, and this is a really big number, but $29.4 million hit next season. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, you know, finally going to start taking up, you know, a unicorn share of the cap or a unicorn share of the cap next season. You know, he's going to go from seven point four million dollars in 2021 to thirty five point eight million dollars uh, in, in 2022. The, the Chiefs have done a great job so far of maximizing some like just inherent advantages, not just Mahomes' talent, for instance, but the fact that he really hasn't been an issue on the cap yet. You know, they, they've had Chris Jones on his rookie deal and not taking up a star share of the cap until next year. Tra 
Tra- Travis Kelsey's number has been manageable. And I'd argue like sort of artificially because he's producing like the best wide receiver, but he's being judged in salary like a tight end. That's a huge advantage for the Chiefs. Um, so, you know, going forward, the, like the degree of difficulty is going up. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Like the Chiefs overpaid for Frank Clark uh, because they could. They overpaid for Sammy Watkins because they could. Anthony Hitchens, same deal. There are others. You can only do that for so long, right? Um, the Chiefs would have loved to have had Trent Williams, uh, but they couldn't get themselves in a spot where they are overpaying for him too, you know, not at 32 years old and not with these other issues going on. So, you know, they need to be surgical now in a way that they just didn't before. And that's going to make things more difficult. This is what NFL people talk about when they talk about parity, you know, like the cap can be manipulated, but only so much and only for so long. Uh, what's really cool to watch here, uh, you know, and I don't know, <laughs> cool at least like for football dorks like me, uh, but it's, you know, the skills and, you know, maybe the execution required from the front office for the next two or three years, very different um, from the skills and execution required for the last two or three years. You know, the Chiefs have been able to sort of like shock and awe the league with these extensions, outbid everybody for Frank Clark, uh, outbid everybody for Tyron Matthew. You know, and then complement the whole thing with some draft picks like Juan Thornhill. But the plane is different now. Like where, you know, maybe before what mattered most is a free agent, um, what was the ability of that free agent. Now the balance is there with needing value as well as ability. You know, uh, the drafts have to be more productive. So Brett Veach is really good at his job. And, you know, more than that, um, I think he's got good people working with and for him. There's, there's good vibes between the front office and coaching staff. And you don't need to have followed the Chiefs very long to know that's valuable. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, but it, it, it's also true that this is a really important few weeks or months for the front office and for the Chiefs. They've addressed some weaknesses, uh, but they still have more. And we all, and look, I'm not trying to get like too meta here, right? But I don't mean just sports fans when I say what I'm about to say, but I mean like really human beings with this one. But like we all want to judge a process before it's completed, you know, but things don't happen in a straight line. They're not all linear. Um, and you don't always get the breaks that you want. Uh, you have to change your plan on the fly, you know. And so, look, if this was the Chiefs roster going into training camp, I would tell you to freak out. <laughs> but this is not the Chiefs roster going into training camp. It's not even the Chiefs roster going into the June 1 cuts, you know, let alone the draft. Um, you know, my guess is the Chiefs will land at least a serviceable, a solid left tackle. You know, I love Alejandro Villanueva, by the way, um, for that role. And they'll pick up some pieces that will cover, you know, some but not all of the other weaknesses. Um, They're going to enter the 2021 season as the overall betting favorite for the Super Bowl, you know, or at least close to it. And and they will then, you know, they're going to need, after that, they're going to need some combination of, you know, good play, good health, and good luck to win another championship. And that is how it's supposed to go, right? Um, That is exactly how it's supposed to go. So, um, look, don't freak out. Don't freak out. Um, Not yet, anyway. Uh, okay. Uh, before we move on to the rest of the show, the podcast is free, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you one more time to join us behind the paywall. We work hard to bring you information and perspectives you can't get in other places. We have the most journalists working the Chiefs beat, the most combined experience around the team, the most perspectives. Please help support us by giving the Sports Pass a try. Again, you can join for a dollar a month for the first three months or $30 for a year. You can find those links online, um, or better yet, just reach out to me, Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and I will send them along to you. 
Um, okay, quick break, and then we are back with some questions. Um, if you want to participate in next week's show, uh, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put the number in your phone, call anytime, 816-234-4365, or as the great reader Michael points out, 816-BEG-IDOL. Okay, uh, quick break, then the questions. Hey, Sam, this is Bill. Yes, uh, I think that you sports writers are underplaying the effect of the virus had on the KU team. McCormick was flat-footed the whole game, obviously suffering from from the effects of the virus, and Wilson couldn't start it for a high school team with his condition. So you got 40% of the team affected, and I think that I think the team as a whole sense that these these players might not be up to up to their abilities and that had some effect on the game and I, I, I don't see that any in your writings of any of your fellow sports writers where this this had anything to do with the game okay but I think it had a lot to do with it and uh, uh, other than the fact that KU was <clears throat> mismatched uh, personnel wise I think the virus had a lot to do with it with this defeat okay thank you I guess we're going to disagree about whether it's been ignored, um, right? But for me, the COVID stuff would hold more weight if KU just didn't get worked by 34. You know what I mean? Um, you know, if, if, if they hadn't won the Eastern Washington game uh, two days before without Wilson and, and with McCormick playing so well. Um, you know, look, now that said, um, I talked a few places uh, before the game just about the difficulty of McCormick getting back up for it again two days later, you know, like – Everybody's different, and, and I'm not saying this is what happened, but you can sort of imagine McCormick being lifted by, you know, adrenaline on Saturday against Eastern Washington. And then when he needs it again on Monday, you know, sort of finding the well a little empty. Um, you know, that's all certainly possible and a reasonable thing to think about. But, guys, this was not like some three-point loss that happened because McCormick was slow and Wilson got into foul trouble. Like, th- this was just a comprehensive curb stomping and KU played about as poorly as it's capable and it was already a rough matchup you know against Evan Mobley's versatility and Isaiah Mobley's size so you know this was the kind of blowout you just can't reasonably blame on any one thing you know it wasn't officiating it wasn't bad luck it wasn't COVID it wasn't one team getting hot it wasn't any of that stuff it was like all of that stuff and way, way more, you know, KU is a flawed team. Like we have always known that since the beginning of the season. And, you know, knowing that is why that run of eight wins in nine games over the last six weeks of the season was so impressive. You know, that that's a group that found its best path and wore that path out and, and did it against some good teams too. Um, you know, but we use that term about teams like having a small margin for error for a reason, you know, KU exemplified that if, if KU could do what it wanted, and follow a specific plan, defend the way that they needed to defend, um, you know, get the right shots, all those things, then it was going to be a really tough. It, that's t- that's a tough out. But if the opponent can sort of 
push the train off the tracks a bit, you know, that's when KU struggles to get going. Um, We've seen that all throughout the season. You know, that's what made Texas such a bad matchup for KU, even during that hot streak. Um, and, and it's worth noting, like even before the USC game, you heard self comparing those two rosters, Texas and USC. So, you know, look, there's a lot going on here. Um, you know, the roster lacked a point guard all season. Uh, the roster always needed more size, more athleticism. The shooting wasn't great. Shot selection wasn't either. You know, these are all things that I would say showed up against USC and we're always going to end KU season, whether it was, you know, the round of 32 or sweet 16 or, or whatever. COVID was an unnecessarily unnecessary challenge. I, I get it. I agree with you there, but I don't think that can explain a loss like that. Um, okay, let's get back to the Chiefs. Uh, and God, I love this question. Hey, Sam, this is Jordan from New Orleans. Uh I typically listen to 810 quite a bit, but work has kind of gotten away the last few weeks. So maybe some people have been talking about this. Maybe they haven't. But I feel like with all of the Trent Williams talk and all the offensive line talk and how we have all these guards and no tackles, uh, maybe you mentioned it this week on 810, maybe you didn't. But I haven't heard it or read it anywhere that Beach got really aggressive in that uh, time frame talk of Eric Fisher being ready in like August or in time for training camp. So or would you rule out the fact that maybe this whole idea of not signing an extra tackle after the Trillions is because they actually do expect Eric Fisher back and maybe actually about not having, you know, an offensive tackle after all. Uh, anyways, thanks for everything that you do. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. I've mentioned it a time or two uh, in the written minutes, I think, and, you know, maybe in a column, but this is a smart question. And, and I'm glad that you asked because, yes, absolutely, Eric Fisher could return. Um, also, let's be realistic. Uh, if the Chiefs felt sure he'd be able to play at 100% this season, they wouldn't have cut him. Um, if they felt great about their ability to sort of patch it together and tell Fisher was 100%, they would not have pursued Trent Williams as aggressively as they did. Um, you know, my understanding of the Fisher situation is that the Chiefs are wanting to maintain contact, you know, maintain communication with the idea that Fisher's obviously free to talk to other teams and, you know, get the best deal that he possibly can. But if nothing big materializes, you know, the Chiefs and Fisher, like each side knows they're a good fit for the other, you know, so so maybe there's something that can get worked out. Um, again, I know that I mentioned this in the lead, but I've also believed that Alejandro Villanueva makes a ton of sense as a cheaper sort of bridge option to someone, you know, better or more long term. And, you know, really, maybe that's a good pairing. Like, Villanueva would give the Chiefs, you know, an adult in the room at left tackle. And, you know, that's a guy you can win with who you know will at least be solid. And then you can get Fisher back on a smaller deal that lets you kind of take it slow with him. Don't rush him. But you have him on hand as well with the idea that at worst case scenario, you know, you have some depth. And at best case, you have a hard decision uh, to make a left tackle at some point. So, you know, there's a few benefits of going this path. Like, again, Villanueva gives you some stability in the short term. And if you get lucky, you know, who knows? Like, here comes 30-year-old Eric Fisher off Achilles rehab. And if you can get back to where he was, then maybe you don't have to go big on left tackle for, you know, a year or two or three. And you can focus your resources in, in, in other areas. So either way, um, yes, Jordan, it's it's a good point to make. And I'm glad you made it. Um, Eric Fisher is not completely completely out of the picture. Um, not yet anyway. Uh, okay, let's get into some baseball. Hey, Sam, I am Jeff calling from New Jersey, and I was uh, struck by your mailbag column of yesterday, day before, where you got the question from somebody on Twitter, it looks like, 
asking about Duffy and why he's a media darling. And I thought you did a decent job of defending Duff to a, a certain extent. But I really feel like you sold Duffy short. I thought the question was in poor spirit, and I agreed with most of the points you made. But I disagreed with something you wrote specifically regarding Duffy living up to his contract. I feel like such a unfair analysis of our ball players to ignore their performance while they're getting underpaid from minor leagues all the way through the his arbitration years before he was able to achieve that contract he was playing and performing at a discount relative to the league and his performance relative to the league during that same time frame so that the Royals and us as fans enjoyed him at a bargain for several years before the bigger contract, which is not only compensation for future performance, but I think we have to acknowledge his compensation for what a player has done leading up to that contract as well, especially when it's our own guy. I, I just uh, I wanted to point that out. I, I think the that full response to that gentleman should have been a full-throated shout-down that uh, he's way off the mark, and Kansas City Royals fans are not uh, – we're not callous, heartless people. We care about our players as humans. Danny Duffy could go out and give up 100 homers in his first outing this year. I'm going to love him forever. So bury him a Royal, and uh, we should all be defending our people better. Thanks, Sam. You do a great job. Well, look, like I share your appreciation of Danny, um, you know, back when we could be in the clubhouse talking to guys, he was always one of the best to talk to um, just a, a really genuine person, you know, somebody who treats the clubbies like teammates and you don't see that all the time. Uh, but obviously we're going to disagree on this. I, I don't think Danny needs anyone's defense. Um, and, and I get what you're saying about how the salary structure is set up, but that's a system that players, including Danny, um, have agreed to. And it's actually one that benefits players like Duffy more than most um, because the big money and, uh, you know, maybe you'd say there's an exception here with the signing bonuses, which, okay, fine. Um, but virtually all the big money is saved for free agency. You know, that's the deal that the players have agreed to. Again, Duffy included. So any player of any value is going to be relatively underpaid his first few years and then slowly get something closer to market value before hitting free agency. Duffy never quite made it to free agency, um, right? But his contract was was obviously framed off of what he figured to make once he got there, if he went there. But, you know, anyway, th those pre-arbitration years, that's a form of spent money, you know? And, and it can be true that overall body of work from Duffy isn't too out of line with what the Royals would have paid him, you know, when you factor in those pre-arb years. But uh, I'm just, I, I'm not sure that that's an excuse or something that you can just sort of write off and say it's fine if you don't perform up to the big contract. Um, you know, that's especially true with teams like the Royals um, who need to find value and they need both ends of it. They need guys performing in those cheap pre-arb years and they need to hit way more than they miss when they decide to spend on someone. So, again, I, I appreciate you standing up for the guy. Um, and I don't think anyone's saying that he's a bad person or whatever. It's just that his performance over the years of the contract has not equaled the money they're paying him. Um, I think that's just. A fact. Maybe we'll, we'll disagree on that. But okay, uh, last question and uh, one more about baseball and contracts. Hey, Sam, it's Patrick from Brookside. First time, long time here. 
I wanted to get your opinion on something. Uh, with the most recent extension for Hunter Dozier, the Royals did another very club-friendly contract where they bought out uh, some years of arbitration and trying to get buy some goodwill with some of their uh, players. I show that this goes back to Zach Granke, who I believe was the first time that Dayton Moore did this. Just curious if you think um, this is something that will be a legacy in the game that will be attributed to Dayton Moore and why we don't see more teams do this. Thanks, tough guy, and I'll listen off the air. Okay, so um, obviously Patrick called in with this before the Sal Perez extension, uh, but I'm glad I saved it because it's obviously relevant here again. Um, Zach is the first one the Royals did with Dayton Moore. And there have obviously been others, Alex Gordon, Billy Butler. I mean, they've done three extensions with Sal Perez by now, right? Um, and I always thought this was interesting. Until that free agent class of 2017 hit the market, um, that was Lorenzo Cain, Eric Hosmer, and Mike Moustakas. It, it was true that the Royals had not let a single one of their homegrown stars hit free agency before signing at least one extension. Um, you know, and the, the Royals are not unique in this. Um, you know, I, I don't know when exactly the, the trend started hitting. Um, you know, Grady Sizemore um, with Cleveland, that was the first big one I remember. And that would have been around like 07, 08, something like that. Um, but anyway, the, the basic structure makes sense for both sides. Like for the teams, you know, they know these players. And they've lived with them. They've helped raise them as players. So there's a comfort there that's just, by definition, impossible to reach with a free agent. You know, so it's it's a player the team wants, a player the team knows fans want, and at the offer from the team side is a guarantee of, of lifetime and, and often generational wealth. You know, that is a really, really hard thing for players to turn down. Now, on the other side, there, there are some hardline agents, and Scott Boris has become the mascot here. But, you know, there, there's others, too. Um, there's some agents that hate doing these deals. Um, you know, the players are the boss, but the, there's a lot of agents. If you get them in an honest moment, they, they hate this deal um, because they, they believe that players who sign them are devaluing themselves. And it's true that on the whole, like if you looked at like everyone, you know, players as a group give up value by signing these deals, um, right? Because they're almost always taking some sort of discount, whether it's, you know, 5%, 10% more, whatever. And, and they're also, this is kind of a hidden part, they're also delaying their chance at free agency. Um, you know, th- that was the genius of, of Zach's deal from his side is that he came up from the big league so early in extension. He still hit the market, I think, at 28, 29, something like that. But for most of these guys, they're delaying their chance of free agency a lot of times into their 30s. Uh, that means their next contract is going to be a little bit lower than they'd otherwise get. Um, you know, that, that they take that discount um, in exchange for that guarantee. Right. So done right these deals are good for both sides. Like players don't sign these deals unless they're happy with their team. And the teams are thrilled to have good players with cost certainty. Um, now the, the Perez deal was hugely complicated um, for a lot of reasons, including John Sherman being new on the job and, you know, Perez having this monster 2020 season. I, I can promise you Sal Perez, that was only 37 games that he played last season, but I can promise you Sal thinks he'd have put up those exact numbers over 162 and if you hook that man up to a lie detector test, and if you asked him if he's the best player in baseball, he would say yes and pass. I promise you that. Um, I also think that he wanted a longer deal than the one he got and, and probably for more money. But, you know, now that that's done, you know, the Royals are going to have another difficult one because uh, Mondesi still has uh, this year and two more before hitting free agency. But that's a deal the Royals would really like to get done. This one is more complicated than most, though, because so far Mondesi has shown himself to be a good defensive shortstop with elite speed and a bat that is streaky at best. 
right? Uh, but he has this immense talent. And for years, the Royals have been telling them that he could be the best player in baseball someday. So now they're going to come wanting to pay him like a number nine hitter. Um, I don't know if that makes sense from his side, right? Um, that's going to be a tough one. And it's basically going to come down to what Mondesi decides he wants. But it's one of the very interesting things to think about with this team and its future and, uh, you know, and to follow going forward. So, um, okay, guys, a quick break. And then we are back with some conversation on a trend that is going to dominate the next few years and affect normal sports fans far more than most of the stories we talk about. Um, How is that for a tease, right? Um, All right, Savannah, let's hit that break. Okay, uh, let's finish strong. And if you think I've focused too much time on this show the last two weeks and the column that's up today, uh, if you think that's too much time talking about something that's affecting relatively few sports fans at the moment, um, it is a hard disagree for me. Because last week we had Sporting Kansas City CEO on here saying that easily more than 30% of fans of his team are unable to watch games as things stand now. That number is only growing. And, you know, even if the percentage of Royals fans being left out as games won't be on any streaming platform other than AT&T this season, it's still a sizable chunk. And and it's one that everyone on all sides knows is only growing uh, in the future. So what we have is this like really awkward moment in history, right? Like technology is improving all the time. Uh, we have more options than ever. Uh, But we're stuck between these two sides where, you know, we're not quite to the, you know, a la carte options or micro subscriptions that will allow everyone to watch. But, uh, you know, we're also far from the days when everyone just either had cable or nothing. So here um, I I talked to David Carter about all this. Um, David is the executive director of the Sports Business Institute at USC and a great person to talk to because he doesn't have a dog in this fight. Uh, He knows sports business inside and out as well as anybody And his position allows him to kind of sit back and call it like he sees it. Uh, And here's how he describes how he sees it right now. And we're starting to see this. And I've been a, I've been a chicken little, I think really for the last probably eight months uh, with clients, with my consulting clients and others, franchises that I talked to that, that I think that if to kind of go off of your, your risks, if, if demand for sports before the pandemic was a nine, and now it's going to come back, and it looks like it's going to, to me, I was saying this many, many months ago, I think it resettles and it comes back to about a seven. And so yeah. um, people have found so many other reasons not to worry about watching games, whether it's because they just prefer highlights, whether they've discovered that they have a family and loved ones, um, right. whatever whatever it might be that, that, um, that has changed their consumption um, I think there's a there's a, a a broader issue about how do we as an industry uh, deal with the fact that that demand might be off for a very long time, and and that doesn't mean that they're not going to make plenty of money and the team values aren't going to continue to escalate and all that, but I think we're just going to be in a new situation where demand feels different, and and part of demand feeling different is uh, these different groups, whether they're young people or older people their likelihood to want to tune back in or to chase their favorite team down the dial to wherever it's landed uh, might be coming, you know, more of a challenge. 
So I think oh, there are a lot of things that are that are in play. Um, and 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 then the overarching demographic of baseball skewing older generally certainly right, makes yeah. that more pronounced than if it was, you know, we wouldn't be having this discussion if it was an esports team. There's a lot to unpack there, uh, but the gist is that he's saying we're seeing sports on TV morph into something vastly different than what we're all used to, and it's happening right now and in big ways. And here's the important part. At a time when networks and teams aren't having the same demand for their product that they've become accustomed to playing on, Uh, the same demand that they've become accustomed to turning into money and, and sort of protecting their decisions. Um, you know, games on TV have always been the best advertising possible uh, for teams and leagues. That's why they fight for exposure. That's why you'll see, you know, startup leagues often give their product away for free uh, for network. That's why, you know, a while back, the NHL got criticized some years back for, for turning down a TV deal with ESPN in favor of one that paid more money but offered less exposure. Um, you know, MLS notably, desperately needs that exposure. Um, and now a traditionally successful and very locally popular club in Sporting Kansas City, they're going to be unavailable to what the club CEO says is easily more than 30% of fans. It just, it doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, teams can focus on the short term and they can justify it to themselves if they want. But as David points out here, like there's a flip side to that. You know, there's a cost to even taking more money. There's a cost to doing that if it means that you're making it more inconvenient for your fans. Yeah, but there's a huge but to that, uh, and it's a, it's it's but if these leagues and major events don't cultivate the next generation of fans, exactly. uh, they've got a huge problem, and so they still have to attract that next gen, and the next gen is probably not likely to be found uh, on on television, but for when they sit down and watch the Super Bowl with their family, or uh, you know they decide to gather around because it's it's uh, NFL football on Thanksgiving Day. Um, you know that most of the new fans that are going to be in, in the next generations to come are uh, will, will have been cord, you know, cord nevers. That's the part that freaks me out, um, and, and this is a weird spot for me because you know I shouldn't care about baseball's profits, and I don't. I don't care about baseball's profits, but what I do care about is baseball's popularity um, because I believe that it's a great game. Um, I believe. I, I, it's an awesome sport to follow, um, to think about, to see in person. Um, I think it teaches kids, and, and I'm including myself here, even though I was a terrible baseball player, but I think it teaches kids a lot of great lessons. Um, so I do care about that stuff. And Okay, so here's David one more time about what the future might look like. It's going to boil down to having uh, production and distribution elements or, or production elements and distribution uh, platforms that – the next generation is going to welcome and that they're going to want to pay for at some point. And so that's going to boil down to how quickly can you um, develop technology that they want and that they'll, that the the next generation will want. And so that's why you're seeing the leagues uh, five years ago, stick their toe in the water with Amazon or baseball with Facebook or whatever. And I know Facebook skews older, but, but the point about they were, they were starting out slow, kind of taking the temperature of, of streaming, perfecting it to the extent they could, refining it, um, it's probably a better word than perfecting it, refining it, making it very user-friendly, and and knowing that, that the transition to OTT is going to take time, and, and I think that was evidenced last week by the NFL deals, uh, it's going to take time, but you've got to start on it. You've got to start that migration, or that next gen of fans is not going to be uh, all that compelled to, to chase you down. 
And that's the thing, right? Like uh, baseball is behind on the infrastructure and allowing their product to be shut out like this from the people they need to sell to the most. It doesn't really give you a lot of confidence that they'll figure it out. David was mostly joking earlier uh, when he called himself a chicken little. And, and maybe I'm kind of a little bit joking now when I call myself the same. Um, I hope I'm being chicken little here anyway, because um, I, I, I love baseball. It's, it's one of the things that, that kept my friends and I connected. It helped my dad and I stay connected when, you know, maybe we otherwise would have drifted apart. And I mean, my God, like I think anybody that was in Kansas City in 2014 and 2015 knows exactly how much baseball can mean to people, you know, at its best. Uh, I get that times change, um, right? Like I get that esports is probably going to be a bigger deal to my grandkids than baseball. I get that. Uh, I, I'm not trying to stand in the way of progress here. Um, you know, I, I would argue that I'm trying to do the opposite, actually. Like I'm hoping, I'm rooting, I'm pushing for baseball to be part of progress. And it's just hard to see how they can make that progress while being unavailable in so many of the homes of the people that they need to reach. That's what I'm saying. Okay, um, guys, that's the show. Uh, I appreciate you listening, and I hope we are worth your time. Uh, thanks to everybody who called in, even those we couldn't get to. Uh, big thanks to Savannah Smith for putting this together. As always, the biggest thanks to you for giving us your time and letting us be a small part of your life. Um, let's do it again next week. I promise next week we will forget about who can watch what at home, and we will probably make way too big of a deal uh, out of the Royal season opener. Um, okay, have a great weekend, guys. Be kind. <laughs>